and welcome back to My First Dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast that helps first-time and experienced GMs alike make their games even better. On this episode, I'm joined once again by one of my favorite writers of supplementary D&D content. If you listen to this podcast, then I'm sure you are already very well acquainted with his monster tactics blog, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, and his book by the same name, as well as his other publications, More Monsters Know What They're Doing, and Live to Tell the Tale, Combat Tactics for Player Characters. He is here today to discuss his latest book, How to Defend Your Lair, which is being released today. Please welcome back to the show, Keith Amon. Keith, how you doing? Very well. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for coming back. I was really excited to get a copy of this book. It's very fun, very different, and it's stuff that I, I've always uh, thought that the best part of encounters and of D and D is like making the environment really interesting and really dynamic. And I think we talked about that a little bit the last time you were here. And this is just a full book size version of that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. picking it up. I was really excited <laughs> to read that. So Keith, what is this book and who is it really written for? It's primarily written for dungeon masters, game masters, storytellers, whatever you, whatever you want to call yourselves. Um, my previous books have all been very 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons specific. They, they are specifically aimed at D&D 5e dungeon masters, or in the case of Live to Tell the Tale player characters. Um, this one, although the examples I give are all in the D&D 5e rule set, the principles in it are broadly applicable to many different tabletop role-playing game systems. So there's there's something in this one for pretty much anyone who runs a game. And what kind of campaigns or games do you kind of envision when you were writing this this book? Any style of campaign that requires PCs to break into defended locations that their antagonists have the time, resources, and intelligence to reinforce. So your your first three books were very much like smaller kind of tactics-based books. This is a little bit more on the like larger scale like strategy thing what made you want to jump from something a little more targeted to something a little bit broader like tower defense and layer defense and you know military strategy on a larger scale i was taking what was an almost throwaway article from my blog uh called thoughts on building encounters it was kind of a stream of consciousness thing in which i was talking about what kinds of monsters might be accompanied by what other kinds of monsters mm-hmm. and the use of defensible space concepts in drawing maps. And I, I just, I just got the idea that, that I wanted to take these ideas and expand them out, go in depth with them, uh, go broader and deeper. And so that's what I did. I've never really done any kind of, you know, castle defense or uh, or like invasion, like layer invasion stuff in many of my home games. This is something I'm definitely interested in trying out. Early on in the book, you start talking about that a layer is kind of meant to protect your assets. It's meant to protect your things, right. you know, your your loot, your, your uh, lore, your knowledge. And you talk about assigning value to these assets in a very like clear and concise way that is a very easy tool for dungeon masters to kind of go down the line of what could be within these layers, assign a value system to them. Can you talk a little bit about what that value system was and how you kind of came up with it? Yeah, so I got that out of a textbook 
on uh, building security. It was uh, published by the American Institute of Architects. Yeah, it was called Security Planning and Design, a Guide for Architects and Building Design Professionals. And the, uh, the principles of detection, deterrence, and response, and the different ways of valuing assets, I got out of that book. So basically, there are six different types of value that you might assign to an asset. And an asset is, is simply anything that you consider valuable enough that you need to defend it. So there's intrinsic value, something that's valuable simply because it exists. Your own life is intrinsically valuable. You don't need uh, to explain or measure the value on it. You just, you just know that's something you need to defend. Uh, monetary value, straightforward. How much did it cost you? How much can you sell it for? Economic value, how much might it be worth in the future if it's going to be worth more than it is now? Or how, uh, how much does it contribute to your ability to obtain resources uh, in the long term? Operational value, how useful is it? Is it something that's necessary to what you do in your lair? Regulatory value, does it grant you the right to engage in a certain kind of activity under the law? If you, don't if you don't exist in an economy, you don't assign things monetary or economic value. If you don't exist within a system of law, you don't assign regulatory value to things. And then the last type of value is intangible value, which is the feelings you have for something. You know, you might uh, in, in the book, I joke, your sad eyed kitten collection <laughs> might not be of interest to anyone who breaks into your lair. But gosh, it means so much to you. You right. want to protect it anyway. Uh, that's intangible value. It's the sentimental things. It can be sentimental, but it also it can also be abstract in other ways. Your privacy Okay. Your peace of mind. These are things that have intangible value, even if they don't have other kinds of value. Stuff like that. Particular relationships. Lore that might be of importance to you, either, as you said, for, for sentimental reasons, or because something has historical significance, or because it's associated with you or your family or your faction in a in in a way that enhances your reputation or your status. Okay. So the AIA textbook assigns these values on a scale of one to five. I talked it over with my editor and uh, decided to switch that from zero to four because I think you know when you're doing the math, it's easier for gamers to think. Well, if something has negligible value, let's give it a zero. Right. Instead of let's give it a one. Yeah. And these are not precise values. They're relative values. I, at some point along the way, decided that monetary and operational value for magic items should correspond to their rarity. So you have these brackets where common things are worth 50 gold pieces or less and uncommon things are 500 or less and rare things are 5,000 or less and so on. And I just kind of extrapolated that to everything monetary or economic or operational. If it seemed like in that ballpark, then that's the number I gave it. 
like orders of magnitude, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you don't have to be precise with these things and you don't have to be consistent from layer to layer, just within a given layer. It helps to use these numbers to highlight which assets are going to demand more of your attention than which other assets and sort them that way so that the, the most valuable ones, you're devoting the most attention and the most resources to defending. And you're, you're doing more of that outlay up front. And then as you work your way down, you might reach a point where you kind of run out of resources and say, well, OK, the measures that I've put in place in order to defend all these other more valuable things are going to have to suffice for these less valuable ones. I recently uh, played a game of Wander Home. And mm -hmm. in that game, there's uh, an aspect of player characters will ask other characters questions. And it kind of helps further define the relationships between the characters. And that was kind of the moment that the game kind of came alive and, play, and characters came alive. I kind of think of this as a similar thing for this physical space and for the, you know, the owner of the layer. Like you mm -hmm. going down these kind of like checklists and figuring out like, okay, what is important to this person? Let's assign a number to it. Even if it's a kind of vague, arbitrary number gives you a lot of information because all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, this guy, you know, this noble really cares about this ring that is the symbol of his house, he's going to put more money to protecting that. And then all of a sudden that's a trickle down effect. Now he's protecting his loot less. Now he's protecting this less. Mm -hmm. And by assigning that value to things, you get a much clearer idea of who this, this villain, this owner is mm -hmm. in a way that is really, really helpful in role playing because you immediately know, okay, that's what this guy cares about. That's what he doesn't care about. Let's go from there. That's how he's going to protect his things. Yeah, and if a lair owner's back is against the wall, they might bargain for their lives, for um, the protection of their most valuable assets. They might bargain away their less valuable assets. So by rating them in this way uh, and ordering them in this way, you get a sense of what they're willing to part with in order to stay alive and be able to continue to protect the things they care about a lot more. Yeah. One of my difficulties sometimes when DMing is you get to that like heightened state of your, your player characters done something crazy. And now all of a sudden they're putting your, your villains back to the wall mm -hmm. and you've got to in the moment think like, oh, OK, I guess. Does he care about this? He, you know, what's what's his what's their decision with this? You all of a sudden have that kind of clear roadmap that I think is incredibly helpful. These kind of like just small little checklists that you can do in just a couple of minutes, but are a great thinking exercise, a great exercise to really let you know what your NPCs and your villains are going to want and are going to need in the moment of these kind of like high pressure situations. You talked uh, a bit about detection, deterrence, and response being kind of like the three keys of security. And even, I guess, before we even talk about that, because that's a big part of this book, is these three pillars of security. Mm -hmm. It's what those little uh, goblin kids on the cover represent also. Oh my God, is that? They, they stand for detection, deterrence, and response. Oh my God. First you got the one looking through the telescope, you got the one pulling up the ladder, and you got the one readying the slingshot. I mean, I loved this cover art before, and I love it even more now. That's <laughs> very fun. You talked about detection, deterrence, and response to these three pillars, but as we were just talking about these kind of, uh, this kind of checklist thing, you were mentioning sources that were you know security textbooks and things, which I'm guessing is a bit of a different research process than your previous books, which were like just kind of think about the monsters and stuff. Can you talk about what did you find most helpful in kind of researching this book and really like parsing it out 
was it these like security textbooks or was it military history? What would you kind oh, of find? It was it was all kinds of things. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the previous books, those were just analysis of, of stat blocks and, and the D&D core books. And I didn't really have to do that much research, not really any research beyond them. I mean, occasionally I would just look something up to, to give myself an example, but mostly uh, the monsters know more monsters live to tell that all comes from either the core books or just things I already knew. This one I had to do a lot of research for. And yeah, I went to the building security textbooks, books on military doctrine, including U.S. Army field manuals, mm-hmm. lots of books on castle construction, books on spycraft, on locks and keys, and also some stuff just came from random inspiration, things that I happened to be reading at the same time I was working on the manuscript. Um, For example, I was reading a book by Brian Kloss called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. It's mostly about the reasons why we keep picking the wrong people to lead things Mm -hmm. like, um, I don't know, the United (laughs) Kingdom or Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Among many. And there's a section, <laughs> there's a section in there on like workplace corruption and corruption in uh, security units and things like that. And one of the observations Klaus makes is that if you assign the same people to the same duties all the time, you increase the risk of corruption in the ranks because Certain jobs tend to be associated with higher status. Certain jobs tend to be associated with lower status. If you get stuck with the scut work all the time, you're going to build up resentment toward your employer or your commander. And conversely, if you are always assigned to guarding something very, very valuable, that's going to start filling your head with ways that you might exploit what you know and other people don't know to pull off a heist or maybe aid in a bet one. So one thing you want to do is constantly rotate all of your underlings through all of the different assignments that they might have so that nobody gets stuck with the worst stuff all the time. Nobody starts to accumulate knowledge that other people don't have. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, and you get, a, you get more of a sense of fairness and a sense of being treated fairly. You also, uh, from time to time, apply integrity tests to you know, make sure that in a tempting situation, your people will do the right thing. And then when they do the right thing, you make sure you recognize them for it and, and say, you know, you were tested, you came through. We appreciate that to reinforce and cement that loyalty. And I read this and I thought, oh, well, this totally applies to what I'm writing. And so I inserted some of that into the book as well. I remember reading that and thinking that was really smart. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, oh, I really want to do like a West Marches style or like a campaign where I'm, you know, the layer owner, like the the party is is all taking care of their layer. And it's just like kind of the day to day of like picking up those kind of little things, mm-hmm. which it could end up being a little bit boring, but could also end up being really fun of like having to root out these, you know, possible areas of corruption. Like 
figure out how to deal with them. And then when one of those giant attacks comes in, all of your kind of chickens come home to roost. How well did you maintain your troops? Hmm. And how well will that help you uh, when this like massive attack comes in? Going back to those three pillars of security, detection, deterrence, and response. This, I think, is another like great checklist item for dungeon masters of if you know exactly how your layer or how your, your villain is dealing with these three elements, you know pretty much everything you need to know about what your PCs are going to be met with when they try to make an attack and what the response is going to be. You at least have the foundation. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly. Just, yeah. Seeing those three, three things listed uh, in that book. I mean, that that was clearly like an aha moment. That was that was something that I immediately recognized. People need to know this. Right. Um, I needed to know this and it's going to change how I think going forward. Can you talk to me a little bit about each of those pillars and kind of what goes into each of these? Part of it could be obvious, but a part of it isn't necessarily. Sure. Well, detection is being aware of threats before they become imminent. So knowing what kind of risks you have to deal with, being alert to them in advance, employing reconnaissance, possibly even spies to... uh, to, to get the earliest possible warning of anything that might threaten your assets. Deterrence, obstacles, things that make people want to not try you. Also, things that slow or stop them when they do. That can be anything from a velvet rope and a no admittance sign to a 40 foot high stone wall. You know, to to a swinging blade slashing back and forth across a hallway. Although I have I have opinions about traps, namely that you don't want to use fatal ones anywhere you or your underlings might be trying to get things done. Sure. But traps fall into the uh, deterrence category. And then response is any kind of active operation to stop an incursion once it's begun. So anything that your guards would do constitutes a response. Anything that you would do upon finding out that that your lair is being invaded counts as response. Response is active, and it requires not just someone to respond, but also a battle plan. And if you have a certain number of creatures or henchmen in your employ, the bulk of them should be assigned to the response component. Because if you have failed to detect an incursion, or you detected it too late, and your methods of deterrence didn't stop the incursion, then you want to have the greatest possible force at your disposal to respond to it and put a stop to it. I always thought of the detection and deterrence as I was reading, very much like setting up the pieces on the chessboard. And then your response was, all right, what happens when shit hits the fan? This guy goes here, this guy goes here, these guys pull back, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, if depending on what kind of antagonist you are putting yourself in the shoes of, their psychology might be different. I recommend putting the bulk of forces in response, but... Let's say you're a beholder. Beholders are paranoid. They might choose 
to put the bulk of their resources into detection or split between detection and deterrence and figure that they can handle the response themselves. Mm -hmm. They might not trust anyone or anything else to handle the response. So it's not hard and fast. And you can you can always let the unique characteristics of your villain alter the balance and, and change things to reflect their priorities, their psychology, and even their flaws. You know, one, one thing I mention is that a, uh, a smart commander will compensate for their own weakness. If you have a wizard who is magically powerful, but physically weak, okay, maybe they've got some powerful bodyguards, just tanks, you know, to, to interpose themselves between a threat and themselves. Whereas a stupid leader does not acknowledge their own weakness mm -hmm. and instead thinks, I am strong in this way. I need lots of people who are also strong in this way, but not as strong as I am because then they'd be my rivals. Can't have that. So again, you know, the, the, the flaws of the villain can alter the balance. It is really fun to take a look at, you know, a personality and extrapolate to how would they offer physical protection of a space? I, I, I have always, ever since I started doing this stuff more than 30 years ago, I have always loved to bring psychology and epistemology mm -hmm. into the mix. How do the creatures that the PCs encounter think? What do they know? How is that different from what the PCs know? And what does that imbalance of knowledge imply? I love that. I, I've always felt that being able to work with that and play with that makes the encounters come alive. Oh, absolutely. And it, it makes what could be a just like kind of standard block of hit points versus block of hit points encounter become something alive and interesting because the players can feel that there is a thinking entity on the other side of this encounter, whereas so often it's very easy to fall down the rabbit hole when you're just, you know, inundated by a large stat block of, okay, here's the most effective thing. We'll do that. We'll roll mm -hmm. the dice. Great. That's, you know, the game. The game's rolling the dice. And it might not be good thinking. It might be comically bad thinking, but it's still thinking. And that's still fun. That's like a whole personality for the, the character. You know, this guy thinks he's great with a sword. Turns out everyone's been lying to him his whole life, but he's mm -hmm. going to act as if he thinks he's, you know, a mm -hmm. great duelist. And that's where you get a like great battles and also like great social encounters. Your players get to, you know, really have fun with what's happening. I absolutely love that kind of stuff. I think one of the biggest reasons I love your writing in these books is that it highlights something that I've always thought and I always try to do with my games is if you spend that little bit of extra time kind of thinking down a line, like, you know, thinking, what would these monsters really do? What would someone really do to protect this? Like, like really inhabit it, really like let it live. Your games get infinitely better in a very short amount of time. Like it doesn't require a lot. Just kind of going down one of these lists of detection, de deterrence, response, going down the list of, you know, what kind of assets are in this place dramatically heighten what could be an otherwise lifeless encounter or a lifeless, you know, uh, adventure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. You know, at the outset of this book, I tell dungeon masters, okay, you're used to choosing your villain, drawing a map, 
and then filling the map up with henchmen and treasure. And I recommend that instead of that, you start with your villain, figure out what treasure they've got and how they value that treasure, and then now figure out how are they going to protect it based on their priorities and their abilities. Build the lair around that and then hire the henchmen accordingly. So it's a different order and it doesn't work with that kind of very AD&D generate the dungeon randomly on the fly. It, it's, it's incompatible with that practice. Right. But also, you know, it, it's in the service of telling a completely different kind of story. This is not just a dungeon crawl. This is a heist movie, basically. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, in a way, it's sort of a, a superhero movie where players are the characters with powers and they're going up against the villain who has their own particular motivations. It's story from the beginning. It's story baked in. And and once again, this is sort of my retort to all the people who think that combat and role playing and story are polar opposites. You know, mm-hmm. that, that you either have one or the other, or maybe you compromise between the two. I think combat is simply another expression of role playing. It just, you know, it's it's more mechanically rigid in order to avoid the I shot you. No, I shot you. You know, that kind of thing, right. because you're you're probably not going to die from a social interaction encounter. So there need to be more, uh, you know, more constraints on it. But ultimately, all of the tactical stuff, the strategic stuff that I like to delve into, it's all in the service of telling a better story. And I think your analogy of of a heist movie is great because that is what I kind of think of as this. And when you think of, you know, detection, deterrence, response. Yeah, also, and- I freaking love heist movies. If, if that oh, probably comes through. Oh, for sure. I'm with you. I mean, for the longest time, Ocean's Eleven was my favorite movie. Uh, it's still probably in my top five. I'll, I'll watch that movie. Anytime. Ocean's Eleven, the score, man. Check out the score. Score. That's a good. I was one. always, uh, I was always a big Con Man fan too. So the Sting mm-hmm. was like when I saw the Sting. Nine like, Queens, beautiful. Ooh, I don't know that one. Oh, it's it's a, a Spanish language one. I think it's from Argentina. It's really good. Okay, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. But the the idea of heist movie really got me because. It kind of reminds me like, you know, invading a layer that doesn't have to just be a one session thing and probably like shouldn't. That can be a multi-session, almost like campaign level event of you got. All right. You got to figure out what the defenses are. You got to figure out what the traps are. What, what's this person's motivation? What's in there? Like what's worth taking? I mean, there are whole like acts and scenes of a heist movie. If you think of it, that can be played out over a long period of time that can really make the invasion of a lair, the invasion of a castle, the invasion of, you know, someone's fortified location as epic as you want it to be, as epic as you expect, like, Helm's Deep to be. Yeah. Or, like, you know, the uh, the culminating scenes of Seven Samurai to be. Mm-hmm. I include uh, 16 sample lairs in this book. Mm-hmm. And I had intended originally to include an archdevil citadel. Ooh. And unfortunately, I ran up against my deadline and that one was just too big and and I didn't have time to complete it. So that one fell by the wayside. But something like that is is going to be the kind of thing 
that you don't enter in a single four to six hour session. That's that's going to, you know, something like that is going to take a lot of preparation and it's going to be slow going and, and might in itself constitute a sort of dungeon crawl. The 80s are over and you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you, and you got touched by the weird, and it made you wild, and it made you powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development, and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter, featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco, kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. The 16 layers at the end of the book are honestly like if this if this book sounds remotely interesting to you after listening to this podcast, pick it up for if nothing else for the 16 layers at the end, because they are kind of, you know, in in the style of, you know, candlekeep mysteries and things. It's 16 like fully made adventures for you. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to caveat that because they're okay. not intended as 16 fully self-contained pick up and play uh, one shots. They are meant to be illustrative, to put the principles of the book into practice in in ways that allow readers to see how it's done. Trying to run any of them as a one shot is going to require DM input if if somebody wants to try to adapt them for a non D&D rule system that's going to take work although it is doable they'll require some fitting into a campaign and a setting but also you can feel free to change anything in them you want to i'm i'm not by any means saying that you should run them exactly as they are don't mess with them i'm not saying that they're there to play with and to think about and hopefully to have fun reading about because i had a blast creating them and uh, i had the support of a terrific group of cartographers who did a lot of the map design themselves based on my directions. You know, we had a a kind of back and forth process and they, they threw in some tidbits of their own. So those are fun also. They are incredibly fun to read and kind of go through and to, to see illustrated. So in such detail, the ideas that you're talking throughout the book, having those examples to draw from, for me as you know as a reader and as a learner is incredibly helpful because you can immediately see okay here's literally how this gets put in, put into practice here's literally how i can draw up kind of my layers as i make them maybe not to to the extent that you write in the book but like here are the kind of the steps here's what that looks like mm-hmm. here's here's the result here's the product yeah here's the result yeah the other the other section that i particularly loved in this book was uh the, the defensive magic section and the the budgeting section which I know can sound a little boring, 
but for some reason, the economy of these types of things always really excites me. Yeah, and 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 it was interesting to discover when I really delved into it just how broken the economy part is uh, per the yeah. published rules and how you kind of have to seat of your pants it. You really have no choice. You are really picking up where the Dungeon Master's Guide slacks off. Even just the, the kind of broad ideas of here's kind of what this type of defensive magic would cost. Here's what these these tools would cost you. If you are limited by your budget as, you know, any operator of a layer would be, whether you're a dragon, whether you're a noble, whether you're a grung. Or whether you're PCs trying to build yourselves a stronghold. Exactly. What can you put money towards and how does that ripple down the line? Okay, great. You have this amazing, powerful, you know, magical aura, but now you can't afford guards and people can just walk in the front gate, right. you know, et cetera. It's, it's always this kind of scale, this balancing act of what can you what can you do and what does that cost you? And I think that was really interesting, especially thinking about it as if your player characters want to build a stronghold, what they can do. And I think, you know, I, I know you said you built this, you kind of wrote this book for Dungeon Masters to kind of run as adversarial layers. But there's a lot of cool stuff in here for player characters to take these same ideas and build their own layers. I think this section in particular. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like reading reading these books just makes me think about more campaigns that I want to run. And I'm I already run too many campaigns, so I need <laughs> it's probably not good for my, you know, well-being. A DM's reach always exceeds their grasp. As it should, you know, as it should. But having having players run a layer and like trying to get into it with imposing force or the reverse are both incredibly fun campaign ideas. And I think this book is a great resource for either of those. So kind of on that note of, of player characters building you know, their own layers, their own strongholds, the defensive magic section always talks about like how you can prepare these like magical defenses, these magical deterrence, magical detection systems. And it also talks about like being very budget conscious, which I thought was very fun to read. Uh, so what, what do you think are the most effective and budget conscious options for players to use to defend their layers. All right. Well, using the uh, using the Adventurers League rules for how much spellcasting services cost and uh, also trying to apply the Dungeon Master creating a magic item, Dungeon Master's Guide creating a magic item rules as best mm-hmm. I could, which is a little tricky because they don't give you explicit guidance for making magic items that carry permanent spell effects. They give you just enough to figure out like a wand with charges, not so much uh, permanent effects. So I, I fudged that a little bit. But on the detection side, Trespasser's Bane, which is basically a coil of metallic ribbon that lets you apply an alarm spell to, to one of your own doors or windows or other apertures is pretty cost effective lenses of revelation which are basically just a pair of glasses that when you give the command word you can uh, use them to see invisible things on the deterrence side arcane lock is some of the best money you can spend it's just really really solid any place that you want to obstruct an unlocked door and let only certain people in through or enhance a lock that you already have. Arcane lock is is absolute money. Magic mouth, it doesn't do much. Okay. 
except that well it does two things it makes intruders feel like they've been spotted and it makes them worry about what other magic they're going to run into so magic mouth if you don't have a lot else to work with is a terrific bluff i love the idea of investing in a bluff that's incredibly fun. You know, similarly, you can use in the basic rules, it's called Arcanist's Magic Aura. In the player's handbook, it's Nistel's Magic Aura. Using that to create a fake magic aura on something, especially, and I, I took a poll to find out what schools of magic freaked people out the most <laughs> evocation, <laughs> necromancy. All right. So you put a fake evocation aura on a door or a fake necromancy aura on a box. And the PCs are either going to come to that and balk. I'm not touching that. Or they're going to waste a dispel magic spell slot trying to get rid of whatever enchantment is on there. And the only enchantment on there is, is basically this magical camouflage. Those are some good bang-for-the-buck things in the uh, deterrence area. And then finally, also just an amulet of proof against detection and location, which is a standard item in the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's very cost-effective versus casting non-detection over and over and over. So that, that one is, is a, a good bargain. In terms of response, Glyph of Warding, and especially Glyph of Warding combined with Suggestion. Okay. Really strong. Glyph of Warding combined with Gish, but only 5th level. 7th and ninth level Gisha, way too pricey. But a 5th level Gish, it's terrific because Gish normally takes a full minute to cast. If you put it in a glyph of warding, it's instantaneous as soon as it's tripped. That's a fun workaround. I like that. Yeah, and basically you make whoever tripped it, they are now your agent for the next 24 hours. Right. So that's a good one. If you are very worried about supernatural threats, you could cast forbiddance on your lair every day for a year to make it permanent. And that would cost a lot of money. Or you could put Forbiddance in a Glyph of Warding that triggers whenever one of the creatures that you want to forbid comes within a certain distance of it, say 60 feet, and then it triggers. And that's just as good as having it permanent. Right. There's a spell in Xanathar's called Mental Prison, which is very, very good in a Glyph of Warding. And then finally, the spell symbol, which is itself sort of a, a like a glyph of warding with a very advanced consequence built in, like something something heavier than explosive runes. So because it combines both the triggering mechanism and the payload, symbol is a nice, efficient spell to cast. Now, the the tricky thing about symbol the thing you have to be careful with is that the effects extend a great distance and don't care who they get Mm. so you have friendly fire risk with symbol you have to be careful with that and make sure you're putting it 
someplace where you're not going to hit yourself or one of your own people if it goes off. But other than that, it's really good. I think the idea of I'm really like latching on to the idea of like bluffs in your deterrence, because once a siege or invasion starts, it becomes a game of of economics in a lot of different ways. Right. One, have you have you put the right amount of money into things so that your defenses are as strong as possible, which, you know, to your point, casting a spell every day costs you a lot of money. Casting a spell once on something with a trigger has the same effect, but it's way cheaper. And now you can invest that money elsewhere. But if you're if your deterrences and your your um, defenses are making players waste spell slots, that is a valuable economic resource yeah. that they or time have. or time. And I mean, hit points, you know, is another thing. Mm-hmm. Your players are trying to conserve as per many of these abilities, things as possible. Rest abilities. Exactly. These little things like, you know, having someone burn one detect magic may not seem like a lot, but that's a spell slot. And, and it, adds it slowly up. it adds up. And it, for a lot of these layers, it's not just like you go in the front door and then you battle a bunch of guys and that's it. There are levels, there are areas, there are you know lots of different areas of defense and of redoubt and stuff. And interestingly, the fight with the boss may not be the boss fight. Mm-hmm. The boss might, in fact, be weaker than the sum total of their minions, in which case that fight in the main battle area against the response force becomes the boss fight i I was surprised to see in the book that you you kind of talk about how to budget kind of a layer as far as like xp goes and often the you know the boss the big bad was significantly further down in in like cr or in experience points than i had initially thought but of course it makes sense if you've gone through the hell of an invasion if the big boss is you know double if, if it's a deadly encounter on its own it's going to be nigh impossible because you haven't had a chance to you know, do any kind of short rest. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you mass combat power according to military doctrine, you can end up with an encounter. And, and actually, you probably should end up with an encounter that is not only deadly according to Dungeon Master's Guide Combat Encounter Building Rules, but really, really deadly like jam on the wall deadly right and that's not necessarily a bad thing because one thing a lot of dungeon masters run into in fifth edition is especially at higher levels is feeling like they're just not able to challenge their players well this will challenge the players but in order to keep it fair because Despite what I do, I love my players and I root for Mm -hmm. them and I want it to remain Mm -hmm. fair to compensate for that one super deadly encounter that can use up up to half of an entire day's adventuring budget. You need to make sure that any other combat encounters they run into are token, like one medium encounter or two easy encounters. And that's it. Those plus the super deadly encounter and no more, Um, because otherwise, you know, I I call it the wood chipper. You don't want PCs running headlong into the wood chipper. You want them to be challenged and even scared, Mm -hmm. but you want them to survive and you want them to prevail. It, It has to be within their reach if they reach for it. So you keep that balance in mind. On the one hand, having this one thing be 
extremely dangerous, but on the other hand, making sure that the other things they run into are not really all that dangerous at all. They just give the feeling of a little bit of resistance along the way. And I think to make a layer feel as real and as authentic as possible, that deadly encounter should feel like, all right, if the players had all their time to you know defend their stronghold, they would make sure that anyone trying to get in would have as hard a time as possible. Right. Giving them that same experience but mirrored back to them is what they want. Like that, That's the experience you want. You want it to be as difficult as possible, but still with like the chance of being able to prevail. Yeah. And it gives your players chances to like find interesting ways around problems that they may not be able to just hack and slash their way through. The greater the struggle, the sweeter the victory. And, exactly. And if you don't feel like you worked for the win, it's not as satisfying. Yeah. And you know, there and there is also sometimes a bit of a thrill in being able to say, you threw all your minions at me and we survived. What have you got for us now? What can you do to us now? And the villain saying, um, nothing. That was it. <laughs> you, know, you got me. Well played. <laughs> you know, having 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 you know, gone through all of these obstacles and then basically just having the villain at your mercy in that moment can be a lot of fun too. Yeah, I can imagine being the players in that just that very sweet moment. I could talk about this book all day. I think it's incredibly fun. It was a great read. It's definitely going to be something I refer back to a lot. The same way that I do with uh, Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you, Keith, again, for coming on the show. It's really great to have you back and talk about this really cool book. It was great to get an early copy and read through. Honestly, I hope everyone picks up this book. Keith, can you tell the people where they can find you online uh, if they're looking for more? Well, the blog is The Monsters Know What They're Doing, themonstersknow.com. My personal website is spyandowl.com, all spelled out, no punctuation. If Twitter has not face-planted in the last (laughs) two weeks, then I am on Twitter at Keith Amon. I'm also uh, hedging my bets over uh, on Mastodon at Keith Amon at dice.camp. And to everyone listening, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of this book for yourself or for that special GM in your life. And if you don't already own copies of the other books, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, more Monsters Know What They're Doing, and Live to Tell the Tale, Combat Tactics for Player Characters, I highly suggest you grab those as well. They're all very good reads. If you're a Dungeon Master or if you want to know what your Dungeon Master is going to throw at you, pick them up. And if you like this show and want to support it, the very best way you can do that is to go to your podcast player right now and click follow and then leave us a review. It really does help more people find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Past that, you can find us on social media at My First Dungeon on Twitter, you know, assuming it's still around. Again, Keith, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. And as always, remember, if you're having fun, you're already doing it right. Bye-bye, everybody. If you're hearing this, that means you have listened to every last second of this episode, and that probably makes you a fan of this show. Well, if you're a fan and you like what we're doing and want to help others find it as well, then consider leaving us a five-star review over on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Getting more ratings really does help more people find the show, and reading your nice words about the things that we put out into the world makes us feel all warm and good inside, and we want more of those good, good feels. So head on over to your podcast player of choice and leave us a five-star review. Thanks.